The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. here of the book of Revelation, and uh, we'll recap as we've been out a little bit uh, with uh, holidays and different things that have been going on, and so we'll make sure that we're all apprised and on the same page as we do move along here this evening, and, um, but uh, last time we met, oh, first let's, let's start with this, um, um, let's see, is this working, uh, Tyler? There it is. And uh, so, the la- of course, uh, we, uh, in chapter 1 and verse number 19, uh, we discussed the outline that Christ gave to uh, the Apostle John as he was there on the Isle of Patmos. And uh, chapter 1 was the things that he saw, chapter 2 through 3, the things that are. And then, of course, the rest of the book are the things that are after these things. And so, we've been discussing that every week, and you ought to be able to quote that frontwards and backwards and in your sleep and everything else as well, especially by the time we're done with with this study through the book of Revelation. Uh, of course, then we've, we've referenced this map or a graphic several times, and it even began, or the acknowledgement of it began as we studied through the book of Daniel and considered Daniel 70, 77s, and uh, that, of course, would be a type period of 490 years, um, and uh, you see there what that purpose is. You see that yellow arrow there, and uh, the, fulfill, the fullness of the Gentiles, the church age, uh, as you see on that screen. Uh, it's like a pause. It's like a, a stop in the clock, as we said, likened to that of a basketball game. Uh, when a foul takes place, uh, someone goes to the free throw line, a couple shots are taken. Uh, the game is technically still moving on, but the clock is paused. The clock isn't moving. And so life is still going on, and and uh, and. Events are unfolding, uh, but of those 77s, um, 69 of them have been accomplished up to the point of where Jesus Christ uh, came and was crucified, ascended back into heaven. There's still one of those 77s, or a a grouping of sevens to be accomplished, and that's that candy-striped area at the back there of that graphic, what we know to be the seven years of tribulation. And uh, so... As we can bring this, all this information directly into the book of Revelation uh, and apply that to the outline that we just looked at a moment ago from chapter 1 and verse number 19, uh, the things that are, are in that blue there, covering the church age, but there's a transition into the things that are after these things, and those things are specifically for uh, the Jewish people. We've discussed this, and hopefully all of this is already jogging your memory concerning that. But the transition uh, from the things that are to the things that are after these things is the resurrection or the rapture of the church, as you see there by that green line. And then, of course, the scroll, the book begins to open, and those seals are broken, and all of the first parts of tribulation begin to unfold, which is what we'll be specifically looking at here uh, tonight as we get into things. Of course, uh, last time we met to discuss the book of Revelation, The question was, is there any way we can know that we are coming to the end here of the things that are and about to transition into the things that are after these things? Well, we said that we can pinpoint or we can know when the second coming of Christ is going to take place uh, because that seven years of tribulation have to be accomplished and all of those things that are going to take place in that as well. 
But as far as the rapture and the beginning of uh, tribulation, we can't know for a fact. We can't know an exact date. And so the, the, the funny thing is, is for decades or even centuries, there have been people who have said that uh, here's why Christ is coming back on this specific day, at this specific time, in this specific year. And, I mean, here's 19 reasons why uh, Christ is coming back in 1999. And, you know, different crazy things along those ways. People have spoken about that. The truth of the matter is we cannot foretell uh, when Jesus is going to come for the rapture because Jesus, the Scripture says, Jesus himself doesn't even know the time or the hour. And we discussed why that to be as well, if you remember in our studies, But we did say that we know that the rapture is going to take place at the the very end of the last part of a grander age that we've called the age of the Gentiles, which is the, culminates with the end of the church age in which we're in right now. And there are some signs that we are in the last parts of that age that the Bible talks about. And so we discussed that a little bit, and nine particular signs Scripture talks about that will be uh, postmarks, if you may, or guideposts that indicate, hey, we're approaching the end. And so we discussed this in quite detail, uh, world wars out of Matthew 24, Luke 21, increasing famines, same chapters there, increasing earthquakes, same chapters, uh, an apostasy of the church, that's 2 Thessalonians ch- chapter 2, Israel regathered into their land, Ezekiel chapter 20, 10 kings are going to be ruling at the end of this age, and we discussed that in our studies through the book of Daniel, specifically found in Daniel 2 and 7. Uh, the church will be resurrected or raptured out, Revelation 4, 2 Thessalonians. Thessalonians 2. A covenant will be signed with Israel by the world leader of that day uh, when all this begins and kicks off the tribulation. That's found in Daniel 9 as we studied in our study through Daniel. And Malachi 4 says Elijah is going to be here and he's going to speak to the Jews and bring their hearts back to that of the children and their children back to the fathers. And Jesus himself even reiterates that in the Gospels as well while he was here on this earth. And so all together, There are nine signs that Scripture says uh, tell us that, hey, um, we're towards the end of this age, and things are about to wrap up, and we're going to be coming into this latter part of this tribulation and such. And in our our message last time, uh, we discussed how there's at least five of these signs that we can see taking place already or even as we speak, and uh, that, of course, of uh, world wars and famines and earthquakes and all that type of thing, and so we won't go back and re-preach that. But uh, nevertheless, um, the beginning of tribulation is, is sparked uh, by this event right here, the covenant that's signed with Israel. We studied that in in Daniel 9 as we were doing those studies as well. We've referenced it several times And although it is not specifically even mentioned here in Revelation chapter number 6, we do know that it will take place and that it has to take place because Scripture's already taught us that. And remember with me, as we study the book of Revelation, if we come to the book of Revelation and only try to seek the truth that's found in Revelation apart from the rest of God's Word, we're going to be all kind of confused because the Bible has been given to us like pretty much any other book has been give, uh, is written as well, it's a storyline that's unfolding. It's a storyline of the redemptive process of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even though he was not there in, as far as Jesus and knowing him as Messiah, knowing him as 
uh, Emmanuel, God with us in Genesis 1 or even in Genesis 3, we see that he was there. Genesis tells us that when uh, God uh, formed mankind, it says that he said, let us make man and our image, and so we know that he was talking about God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He was there in creation. In Genesis 3, when the fall of man took place, he said that, uh, that uh, the serpent would, uh, would uh, bruise the heel, but uh, Christ would bruise his head, and that was speaking of uh, a for, uh, the first prophecy of Christ. And so from the beginning of the book all the way through the end, it's the unfolding revelation of Christ's redemptive work for mankind. But just like any other book, if you went to, this, to the bookstore and picked up any book, and if you tried to read only the last chapter, You'd be confused of how the, the, the book is ending. There would be people and characters that you don't know who they are because they were introduced maybe in the first chapter or in the third chapter. And you say, well, why was that person so important? Well, if you would have started at the beginning, you would have known. And that's exactly how the Bible is to be, to be studied as well. We don't just go jump to the back of the things and say, I want to know how it's all going to end. We got to have a knowledge of how it progresses through as well if we're going to have a proper knowledge of how it all is going to end. And uh, so we know that in Daniel 9, there's going to be a covenant that is signed with Israel that will reestablish temple worship and, and uh, sacrifices on the altar there again as well. And, uh, and uh, that's going to kick off what we see beginning here in Revelation 6, which is the events of the, of the tribulation period, those last seven years of Daniel's 77s. Now, the tribulation period could be broken up into three specific parts, and uh, we won't discuss all of them here, of course, tonight. We're just getting into that first part, but Revelation 6 through 9 is the first half of tribulation. Revelation 10 through 15 is mid-tribulation, and then, of course, the latter chapters, verses, or chapters 16 through 19, is the second half or the great tribulation. You say, preacher, there's three things up there, and you, said, you use the phrase half on both. That's because the middle part being more than just a period, it's more of a moment, if you may, and we'll discuss that as we get closer to it and the portions of scriptures about how that is to be true. Uh, and just a quick overview, so you have a little heads up as we move along. Uh, these are the events that take place in all of those. In the first half of tribulation, you've got war, famine, earthquakes, woe, judgments, the 144 sealed, and many are saved, temple sacrifices opens, and, and uh, the two witnesses will minister. Then at that mid-tribulation mid moment or, 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 or period, uh, the Antichrist will die, but then he'll be resurrected. The remnant will be protected, Satan will be expelled, temple sacrifice ends, abominations begin, uh, world worship, the world worships the beast, three kings are killed, and the witnesses are killed, 144,000 martyred. And then the last half, those last three and a half years, which are, are regularly termed as the Great Tribulation, these are the events, the bow judgments, the war of Armageddon, fate sealed, martyrdom, and of course, the mark of the beast, as we find in Scripture. And so those are all the events that are unfolding throughout those times. And we'll study, of course, each one of these chapters, verse by verse and segment by segment, as we have been already, but you will see how they all line up together in these three particular moments or details or parts as we go along. And so to, tonight we're going to jump right into the first half of tribulation, the beginnings of that here in Revelation chapter 6, and I'd like you to read with me in verses 1 through 4. Revelation 6 verses 1 through 4 as we begin here tonight, we'll be looking at 
these uh, seals opened and uh, the results of the first two here as they are open, and then we'll, of course, look at the uh, other ones next week as we move along. But notice with me verse number one, and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard as it were the noise of thunder. Now, if you'll recall, and I'm, it was kind of just in passing, uh, but I do want to make note of it again. Um, uh, several weeks ago, we read that there was thunderings and lightnings, and I made the statement when we read that, that, that phrasing, thunderings and lightnings or thunderings or whatever the case might be, in the book of Revelation particular, particularly, that usually means judgment is about to follow, all right? And so uh, be looking for that and just think about that as you even read on your own, that uh, when you find that, normally there's going to be some type of a judgment that follows. And so he says he heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I, this is John, and I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Our Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity to be in your house, and Lord, I ask now that you just guide us as we study your word. Give me the words to speak as I deliver it here tonight. Help us to honor and glorify you through our studies uh, and uh, the delivery of this study here tonight as well, and uh, Lord, draw us close to you through it, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Number one tonight, I want you to notice that we, ought, we need to be aware of God's weapon of deception. And you say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, I think you'll notice as we begin to unpack verses 1 and 2 here tonight. Read it again with me. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, John speaking, and he says, I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he, sat on, uh, he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, we find here that it says, and I saw, and it's a continuation of from one event to the next, and so it might be good for us to kind of remember what we saw in chapter 5 and the events that were taking place there. We're in the throne room of heaven, of course, as we're looking there with John, and, and uh, John has seen you know, great worship take place and honor given to God and all of that, specifically in chapter number four, and there's a great cry of how worthy he is and so on and so forth. Then in chapter five, we begin to see uh, uh, there's a little bit of um, dismay because God the Father is holding this book, these, the scroll in his hands as we discussed, and it's sealed up, and the, the question arises, who's going to be able to open this? There's no one worthy. So one brings up the fact that uh, have no fear because Jesus is here, right? And uh, they, he they says, here's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God has come. And, and uh, he takes the scroll from God the Father and he begins to open it. And they begin to sing praises and uh, saying with a loud voice, as we see there in verse number 12, that he's worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And he was worthy to open the book. And so after that song of praise and glory is being delivered, the events begin to unfold. In chapter 6, we see this, verse number 1, Jesus opens the, the first seal and breaks it. And uh, as that has taken place, um, we, we find that the angel comes to, one of the beasts comes to John, and he says, all right, now come and see. Notice that with me in verse number 1, the last words in verse number 1, come and see. 
that phrase, those words, come and see, uh, in this particular context is, uh, is saying it's meaning to look away from your immediate surroundings and to gaze down upon the earth. Remember, John was on the Alipatmos, but in a vision, he's caught up into heaven to see all these things. And so as John were to see it, he were present in heaven. But when the beast says, hey, come and see, he's directing his attention back to earth in a future period, in a time where all these events are taking place, because we said when Jesus breaks one of those seals, guess what happens? Something takes place on earth. It's like when I click this, uh, this uh, clicker here. Something happens on the screen. It moves on to the next slide. And so, and so that, that's kind of what's taking place there when Jesus breaks a seal Mayhem takes place on earth, if you want to put it that way. And so the, the beast says to John, now come and see what's taking place because of what Christ has just done. And uh, when, that takes, when that happens, he sees all these taking place. And with the opening of the first of the, of the four seals here, uh, that are the first of the four seals here in chapter 6, um, we find that something different happens each time on the earth. And uh, one of those, th- what happens is a, a horse shows up, and each horse has a different color, color as it goes along. And these horses and their rider have often been referred to as the four horsemen of the what? Apocalypse. You've heard it, and uh, you, 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 you've no doubt not only heard it scripturally speaking, but people have used that type of terminology for other reasons and so on and so forth. And as we are going to come to Scripture, we study Scripture uh, through a particular type of interpretive process, that is that we interpret it literally, we interpret it historically, and we interpret it grammatically as well. And uh, so when we take that approach, there's no reason for us to believe that John did not see literal horses in this vision. But we do know because of how they are described that they have a purpose of describing something that is taking place. They have a purpose of being symbolic as well. The variation in color and the description of what they do confirm that they rep- represent events that are happening. So as John sees it, he's seeing it unfold, and he has no better way of being able to describe it than just to say what he's literally seen. But each horse with its rider is describing an event that is unfolding and certain things that are happening on the earth. And this is going to become even more apparent as we look at each one as we go along. But as we move on here this evening, we said be aware of God's weapon of deception because the reason I say that is because this, this deception that we see here in the, in, with this first horse and its rider is under God's control. Don't, don't miss that point here tonight because this horse and its rider doesn't show up until Jesus opens the first seal of this scroll. And it is a part of the process that God has already foreordained of how this tribulation period is going to take place. Now, looking at this first horse, notice, look at verse number two. And I saw and behold a white horse, and it gives us the name of the person that's on this horse, and he that sat on it. What a name, he. (laughs) Normally, when you have a, a pronoun like he, it's going to mean that we ought to have some idea of who he is already speaking about, right? Well, many have tried to speculate as to who the he on this horse is, and unfortunately, because they've just stayed in the book of Revelation, 
and not use the entire Bible for interpretation, they have mislabeled the rider of this horse as being Jesus Christ himself. The reason for that is because he had a bow in his hand and because he, had a, he was riding on a white horse. And later on in the book of Revelation, we do find Jesus riding on a white horse. But my friends, we, we need to be careful that we do not misinterpret who is here because the same person that rides this horse, I believe, is the same person that rides all four of the horses. Just each horse represents a different aspect of their reign and rule. So we need to see, is there any other place in Scripture, specifically apocalyptic in its nature in writing, that has a person described as he, that we can figure out who that is speaking of? Well, if you remember back in our studies of the book of Daniel, and go back to Daniel chapter number 9. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up there if you want, so that you can see this. And you're not like, all right, the preacher's just making things up as he goes along. Uh, Daniel chapter number 9, and look at verse number 27. Daniel 9 and verse number 27. Here again, here's that pronoun. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the over spreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even unto, until the consummation, and that uh, determined shall be poured upon the desolate. And so we find another individual described specifically in these events that are taking place through this time we know as tribulation, described as he. Can we figure out who that is discussing? Well, if we, of course, take the portion of Daniel in context, we know that he is referring back to what was called the little horn in, Daniel, in the book of Daniel. That little horn, as we've already discussed, and because of what he does and how he acts and the events that, unfold, that it's speaking of unfolding, we know that that little horn was speaking of, or another name for what we call the Antichrist of tribulation. And so with that being said, John says the rider arrives with a bow. But curiously, notice that he says he only has a bow. He never mentions any mention of an arrow. He never mentions anything that could be shot out of this bow. And so we find that this, this rider, he is on this horse and he comes in and he's, he's got this bow in his hand, but he doesn't have any ammunition to shoot out of the bow. But it'd be like me walking up to you with a pistol in my hand and pointing it in your face and say, hand me all your money. Are you going to take a chance that I don't have any bullets in the gun? Or are you just going to assume that it's loaded? You're just going to assume it's loaded, right? And so as this one on this horse arrives, he's got a bow in his hand, and although he doesn't have the arrow put in it and drawn back, it's just the assumption of others that he's got the ability to rage war like he's showing up on the scene ready to do. Now we see as things go progress on that that is one of the things that will happen. War will take place, but it's a, it's a, it's a whole deception at first. This man shows up on the scene with a, a, a sense of power that he really doesn't have. And I, a, 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 a facade of authority and power that he doesn't quite yet have yet. He will have it because the world will give it to him. 
because God allows that to take place. But when he first shows up, it's not quite as powerful as he seems to be. And so, in this case, the man with an only the bow suggests someone who threatens harm, but is lacking the capability to carry, out, carry it out fully. But notice that this, this deception, it will come to conquer. Because notice it says that he went forth at the end of verse number two, he went forth conquering and to conquer. He doesn't just show up and to, to kind of have a facade of authority and, and military might just for the sake of saying, ha, sight gotcha. You know, it wasn't anything like he. The purpose of him coming on the scene is to be able to conquer and to take over and to grow in his power. So he doesn't, he doesn't have any official authority on his uh, behind him. He's it's all for show. It's all a facade. But eventually, he receives power. Look at what verse number two says. Here, this man on the horse. He comes. He's he that sat on it had a bow. And notice it says, a crown was given unto him. Now, the crown was given. He didn't already have it. And that specific word crown is the Greek word stephanos, which is the same one we've already discussed in our studies that Paul used when it talks about the crowns that the believer will be given as a reward. It's something that is given as a uh, reward. It is not a, 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 a given because uh, it is not a, something that is uh, a, a threat or a judgment, but it's given because of something that has been accomplished. And so here we find this one that's on this horse. He shows up and he doesn't have authority of his own. To gain authority, he shows up flashing power that he really doesn't have and might that he really doesn't have, but it's deceptive enough that people start giving him power, and so he, he begins to receive this power and give him a crown. You see, if he would have had been a natural-born king, a natural-born authority, uh, they, the Greek word diadem would have been used there. And we find here that that's not the case. It is Stephanos, and so it means that he is going to be given military or political power. He's going to be appointed this authority. He's going to be appointed this power. Also, a white horse was traditionally uh, the type of horse that was ridden by a military commander or a conquering leader. And so he shows up, as, it's almost as if he shows up wearing a uniform that isn't his, to try to throw people off, to gain power that he truly doesn't have. It says there he, goes, he went forth to conquer and to conquer, and so that implies that it's uh, into the world overall. And conquering and the conqueror implies that it begins, uh, he begins to take control, but this process takes time. He doesn't finish conquering in just a moment, but he progresses towards that goal over a period of time. And all of these details, they work in harmony with everything we've already studied about this period from the book of Daniel and elsewhere. And so it's only logical to conclude then that he that sat upon the white horse is the Antichrist then. And the power that he's receiving is not because he earned, because it's his own, he deserves it. The power he's receiving is because God has allowed him to have it. And he comes in with a facade, he comes in with deception that brings him to the ability to conquer but that deception is only given to him at the power that God has allowed him to have. 
as he rides out to conquer, his power base begins to grow. And back in Daniel 9, we learned that this man would come from a certain people. Notice with me in Daniel 9, if you're still there, or turn back there if you wouldn't mind. Daniel chapter 9 and verse number 26. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself and the people of the prince that shall, that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. So the temple here is being foretold to be destroyed by the people of the prince to come. The, the prince to come is another name for that little horn. That little horn is another name for who? The Antichrist. And so the, the prince to come is the Antichrist. He is the he that we see that is on this white horse in uh, Revelation chapter 6. And, and uh, so it says the Antichrist is going to come from the same people who destroyed the temple. Now, if we go back through history, who destroyed the temple? That happened when the Roman government came onto the scene. The only problem is, is the Roman Empire is not together any longer, right? So we can't say that, oh, he's going to come from the Roman Empire, but we can rightly state then that that person that is going to be the Antichrist is going to be of a Gentile descent, a non-Jew. Everybody agree with me on that, that part at least? That's as far as we can go, though, because there, it says he will come from the people that destroyed the, the temple. The problem is the, the very specific people, the specific nation, they're not even an empire any longer in the way that they were at that time. So we can't necessarily pinpoint what ethnicity this individual will be that is, that is the Antichrist, but we do know that it is not a Jew. Here's the point, my friends. People ask, well, how are we going to know? Who, will we know who the, the Antichrist is? Can we look and see where he's going to come from? All of that is neither here nor there. We do know that he's going to be a Gentile. The scripture is clear on that. And here's the truth. You and I are going to be gone from this place before any of that takes place because the Holy Spirit and his presence in the body of believers known as the church is what is holding back the Antichrist at this moment. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But people have speculated. People have been like, oh, it's going to be the Pope. It's going to be this or that. And, and Folks, like you can speculate, but it does nobody no good to try to be dogmatic about those things. The only thing we can dogmatically state that it will not be a Jew, it will be someone that is not a, of Jewish descent, a Gentile. And so... We find that uh, when Jesus breaks open this first seal, this man is launched out onto his career of conquest, and that moment begins with that signing uh, with Israel for temple worship and, and uh, sacrifices to be able to be held in the temple again, and, and it's, not under, it's not hard to understand how the world would gladly give power to a man who's able to broker such a peace deal. Could you imagine the Arabs allowing the Jews to walk into the, the, the temple mount today and, and sacrifice on an altar there, there's no way under heaven that would happen. There is no way in the world that they're going to allow it. But this man comes on in with being allowed to have the deception that he has from God to say, look at me, I've got this power that he really doesn't have. And he uses that, that uh, charisma to be able to get the Arabs and the Jews to sign a peace treaty 
that allows the Jews to have their worship in the temple there again and to have sacrifices accomplished again. And, if, and how we can see things and almost in real time today through the internet and all that's going on, there's no, re, no wonder that the world would say, now that's someone we need to follow because look at what they were able to accomplish. And so they quickly thrust him in the power that, he, that is not rightfully his, but they give it to him willingly. And, uh, but it's clear, though, that Jesus is the true power here. It's not any of this Antichrist himself. It is Jesus and his allowing it to take place. He's the one who broke the seal. And so we have to be aware of that, that God's in control. But what else? Before we close up tonight, what else, if anything, can we learn from the scriptures about this man who launches the world into tribulation? This man that we know as the Antichrist. I mean, after all, the Bible gives him many different names. Uh, He's called the seed of the serpent, uh, the little horn. He's called a prince. He's called the lawless one. And, uh, but the title that we use is one that John uses most often, and that is Antichrist. Antichrist means one who opposes Christ. And in light of how many different ways the Bible describes this character, this individual here, we ought to take a moment to understand some things about him, I believe, before we go any further. So let's begin with John's famous term, term Antichrist. And if you have your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 2. And verse number 22, John 2 and 22 says this about the Antichrist. He says, who is a liar, but he that denieth Jesus is the Christ. Notice what he says about the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He says, he is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. So in this reference, John is teaching that any person who denies Jesus as Christ is a Antichrist themselves. Now, that means to say that Jesus is not the Messiah would mean to oppose Christ. And in that sense, anyone who stands opposed to Jesus is Antichrist. Are you following along with me? In fact, I believe that's why in the scripture, uh, many a times you'll find that word Antichrist specifically in 1 John 2 and 22 is not capitalized. Because it's not speaking of one individual, it's talking about anyone who would take opposition against Christ. And so the, then next we look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 18. Verse number 18 of 1 John 2, he says, uh, little children, uh, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, he's, notice what he says, even now are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. So John says one of the ways we know that we're in the last times is because there's a bunch of people that are opposing Jesus as the Christ. Well, how do we know that we are in the last times? And we say, well, so, you know, David could have said we're in the last times. That's not true because Jesus had not come and been presented as the Messiah in David's days. So it wasn't until Jesus death, burial, and resurrection and his ascension, where he's proven to be Messiah, that anyone could be standing in opposition of him as Christ. And so therefore, it's from that point forward that we have moved into at least what we could be known as the last times of this age. And so therefore, we know that even today, there are many that would oppose Jesus as Christ. And not everyone who uses his name uses it as what it truly is. There are, there are religions out there that would teach that Jesus and Satan are brothers and that Jesus isn't truly the Son of God. He's just a God. 
Now, my friends, that's in opposition to what the truth truly is. That is truly anti-Christ. And so we find that is even true. We're definitely in the last days of that. Um, but we find that in this particular verse, in verse 18 of 1 John 2, there's two instances. And that first instance, I believe that the, uh, the translators could have uh, capitalized Antichrist. It would not have been wrong to do so because he says Antichrist will come. I believe that is a reference to the literal man that we know as the Antichrist of tribulation. And therefore, he uses plural in the next one. But nevertheless, this, uh, we, we, we find this second instance, uh, the word is plural again. We see that, and John says there's already many antichrists. This reference is similar to the early one, earlier one we just read. And so anyone, people who denies Jesus as Christ are antichrists of our world. But John says the fact that there, these people exist is proof that we're in that last time, the end of days. Um, and so therefore... We know also that he says there will be an ultimate, the, the, uh, the head, Antichrist, if you want to put that in the tribulation time. So there is an Antichrist to come. And in the meantime, we have Antichrist who denied Jesus. And that leaves us with just a couple of final mentions from John himself about this man, the Antichrist. Take your Bibles and look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. He says, every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Now back in 2 John 1, in, in verse number 7, he said, for many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. John now mentions the spirit of Antichrist, a, a spirit that is both in the world now and will ultimately come in full fashion, he says. And this gives us a, a few of uh, these this final mentions by John here, this, uh, that the spirit is the cause, if you may, this, this spirit of Antichrist, this, this spirit that says uh, Jesus isn't God, Jesus isn't the Messiah, is what is behind every person who does not confess Jesus is from God. Now, the reason I bring that up is because if it were possible, Satan would use anyone, anyone, my friends. If it were possible, he would use anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ to be the Antichrist. So what is stopping him from accomplishing that right here and now? 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin, sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. See, Paul says that the day of the Lord or the tribulation will not come um, unless the man of perdition or lawlessness is revealed. He's called a son here as we see there uh, because he is the, uh, the son or seed of Satan. He exalts himself above every so-called God and every other object of worship. That means that he will claim to be God above Muhammad. He will claim to be God above Buddha or any other pagan God that's out there as well. Eventually, he will take the seat of God in the temple. Remember, he was the one who 
brokered the deal for the Jews to be able to come back in the temple and have it and, and worship and bring sacrifices. But he's also going to be the one who eradicates it and says, no, you've got to worship me. And he sets himself up as God. This, uh, and so we find after three and a half years that it will all take place. And Paul says that he will decide at that point that he is God and so that he even takes a seat in the temple. This man's end, though, is foretold by Daniel, as we've already studied. And since we know that he is destroyed by the arrival of Jesus at the end of the seven-year period, uh, we, we know that it's a short-lived time of power. And Paul confirms this in another part of 2 Thessalonians. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 5 through 9, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know uh, what withholdeth that he might be revealed in this time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. See, what Paul is saying there is that there is a restrainer in the world that is preventing the rise of the Antichrist. And the Holy Spirit is what stands between Satan and his desire to rise up this false Christ through whom the enemy might be able to gain uh, the world's worship. And so he, through this, notice in, verse, in these verses again in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 5 through 9, he says, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And he says, Now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in this time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. His work is already here. The spirit of Antichrist is already prevalent, no doubt. He, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan power, lying wonders. But in the verses prior to that, he said, none of this will unfold. None of this will take place until he's revealed. And he can't be revealed until the Spirit is removed. Now, what makes a believer a believer? Well, I mean, I understand our faith in Christ, but what is the sign or the sealing that we are a believer? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So if the Spirit is gone, that means the believer is gone. And that means if the believer is gone, then we are not going to be privy to the events that are bringing this, uh, this man onto the world scene where he's gaining power. Could he be alive while we're still here? I, I believe he probably could be, but he's not going to be thrust forward as the Antichrist until we're gone. And so we worry. Like, people, are, people have been talking about presidents being the Antichrist and things like that. Like, folks, you just you don't get so worked up in your emotions that you forget to think about what the Bible teaches. And so nevertheless, we find that, ironically, the rise of this Middle Eastern peace broker, backed by Satan, only serves to bring the opposite of peace. Instead, he brings destruction and war. We find that as the second horse is revealed. In fact, we're out of time tonight, so we'll look at the second horse and the other two, Lord willing, next week as we consider this, I want to take some time to just think about this individual. 
But we see this man coming in on this white horse. He's got a bow in his hand, and a crown is finally given to him. And he goes forth to conquer and to conquer. And then the second horse comes, and, and uh, he's given a, a sword, it says, as he, he goes through, and he begins to make war and so on. And, and we just begin to see the, the promotion, if you may, the career advancement of the Antichrist through these events as they unfold. And we'll take more consideration of that as we move into the weeks to come as well. Our Father, we do thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. And uh, God, I just ask that you'd help us as we continue to study, that you'd guide us through it, and that your spirit would lead us in all truth, and uh, that you would ultimately be honored and glorified through it as uh, we strive to just want to draw closer to you and see how you're uh, already planned out and you are in control. And uh, you've, got a, uh, you've got us in your hands, and we uh, have no need of worry in that. Well, we praise you and thank you. We ask that you request here tonight now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have a